absolutely ridiculous. Hello everyone, welcome to Around the Course Squash podcast. On today's episode, we welcome a Canadian, an English and an Irish woman to the show. Not a joke, they are all former PSA players and former competitors with Raneem El-Walili and they pay tribute to Raneem who, for those of you who have been asleep for the last number of weeks, has retired at the summit of the rankings. We do also a little talk about college squish and a question we all want a definitive answer to is when are we going to get competitive squash again? Whew. Bad times, they be it. Oh, hopefully soon. Hopefully soon. <laughs> I'm not so sure. Uh, my name is Arthur Gaskin. With me as always, Stuart Crawford and Christopher Sackby. How you doing, fellas? Good, thanks. Yeah, doing all right. Hanging in here. Stuart, you definitely look like you've risen above your normal four to six range. Look at that smile. I'm at least a 6.5, but that's mostly just because I've escaped the U.S., I decided to celebrate the US's national birthday by escaping as far away from Trump as possible. But <laughs> we'll, we'll try and keep this apolitical. <laughs> we are apolitical on this show. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm now sunning myself in Portugal and pretty happy with my life at the moment. So yeah, definitely a 6.5, maybe even a 7 by next week. Are we the first anti-Trump squash podcast on the market? <laughs> I never said we were anti-Trump. We are apolitical. <laughs> Chris, but you left the country and you came back in. Why? Uh, yeah, border jumper. Um, Canada. Chris was my guinea pig. He was just testing it out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, popped back to Canada. I think I read on this week, Tuesday, um, they had 400 cases of COVID, 400 positive tests. And in the US, I think there was 50,000 or something. So great question. Why did I come back? So tell us, Stu, what's happening in the squash world? Well, yeah, and uh, certainly in my world and Chris's world, the, the big news for us was the announcement this week that Stanford has fallen brown and uh, dropping its uh, varsity squash program down to club status. Um, and the women's side, it just affects their women's program because their men were already a club program. But more bad news for college squash. Um, Dartmouth is also an announced that I think five sports are dropping from varsity status to club but fortunately squash wasn't part of those cuts so um, slightly troubling times for college squash I would say. Yeah and just college sports in general I mean um, reading reading both announcements Stanford over 240 student athletes are going to lose their place on a varsity team I think they have one year and then they get phased out um, but obviously not not going to be a normal year by any stretch of the imagination. So most of them, their their uh, college careers are probably going to have to continue somewhere else if they want to play sports. Um, Stanford cited they can see their budget deficit going to around $70 million over the next three years. Dartmouth cut five sports. Luckily, squash was not one of them. I think Dartmouth just finished up a, a big reno on their court. So, so that's you know, good timing, great news, but yeah, Dartmouth uh, cited a, they predict the COVID-19 budget deficit hit will be 150 million. I imagine that's over a stretch of time, but um, yeah, I think just, we're going to see some, you know, we're going to see some change in the next 18 months here. Cause it's not going to be even schools that can manage to get through this year. It's got to be a little scary. What's going to happen uh, following this, this school year. And just on Brown, the brown squash note 
I mean, it's slightly different. It's a, it's a weird one because they, they're funded by themselves by the squash alum, but they're actually in court, so it's gone legal. I struggle to kind of comprehend that the president and the AD there would be that out of touch to realise that how important the squash programme was to the alumni that were there, to the community here in Providence, that they wouldn't foresee, you know, a, a response as aggressive as this. Yeah, I, I don't, doesn't sound like these administrators um, care. I think they, I think they know the response is coming and, um, and it's been fairly cutthroat at both schools from what I've heard. I think uh, I, I've heard Stanford never cost, um, Stanford women's squash never cost the university a dime in their entire existence, which might've been 2000, it's been 11, 11 plus years, I think. And has there been any news in college squash? What kind of a season we can look forward to, if any? Yeah, well, first thing off, uh, a lot of the university announced their plans for sort of the fall semester in terms of classes and bringing people back on campus. Now, there's quite a wide array of plans in, in place for that. Um, some campuses seem to be bringing nearly all the students back. Some some campuses are the completely opposite end of the spectrum and it will be almost entirely off campus with online classes. Uh, certainly I know at Penn that we're bringing back nearly all of our students and we'll have a mix of on campus and uh, online classes. In terms of the actual squash season, I think the likelihood is that there'll be no competitive squash until certainly after, after the new year or into the new year. Um, one of the unknowns, I think, is whether colleges or universities that do have students on campus will be allowed to practice. And certainly at Penn, we're hopeful that we will be allowed to use the facilities and run practice with the, with the students that are on campus. What that looks like, whether it's solo practice or just one-on-one -on -one sessions with the students, we're not quite sure. We're kind of working through that at the moment. But um, like I say, certainly there's no plans to have the traditional season starting in November, which is kind of when it usually would. Uh, Chris, you can probably comment on Columbia's plans. Yeah, it, uh, it sounds like every um, Ivy League athletic program will have the opportunity to practice with their players who are on campus. But what that practice looks like, as you were saying, is going to be dictated by, by the uh, cities that they're in and the state of the coronavirus and, um, you know, all those safety, safety measures. So it might be only strength conditioning. It might be a little bit of solo practice. Um, and then, and then obviously phasing up to, to group practice. Um, but yeah, only time will tell. Uh, yeah, it's mad. I, th I don't think it's looking great for the, even the junior squash scene over here, just in ten who knows, but, they're hoping, I think, to start events in January, early January. I just can't see it happening. To be brutally honest, personally, I, it's unusual. I think I was pretty optimistic at the very start. I was a little bit of up, up. There was a little bit of optimism left in me in about two weeks ago. And it's just like you see all these like setbacks and all these dates being pushed forward and forward. I don't know. I think in some ways they might end up being a victim of their own success where um, the number of entries they get in junior tournaments in the US is so large these days that it was back 20 years ago or if it was I know in Scotland and Ireland you could probably have tournaments with eight player draws and it wouldn't be an issue <laughs> um, 
But I think when you've got the US Junior Open that has 128 player draws in 10 different age groups, then suddenly it's pretty hard to practice social distancing when you've got a thousand players playing in an, in an event. Yeah, true. I think it's still on the calendar as December, but if play was to resume early January, which I would take, it would probably be moved to the summer, I think, is what they're trying to is what they're looking at. Yeah, which they've been discussing for a few years now, I think, um, moving moving that tournament uh, anyway, just too close to the holidays and stuff. So, yeah, you could see this bringing about a lot of change in scheduling and sports in general, I guess. But uh, I don't know if you if you aren't optimistic, Arthur, how the hell are uh, Stuart and I going to stay up, man? Come on, I've got no chance. I might be slipping back <laughs> down to a four. So. No, no, no. Come on, you got to stay that six and a half. You're aiming for seven next week, big man, because uh, I'm sliding. <laughs> I'm sliding fast. Oh, man, yeah. Far out. Yeah, not really much else to say on that. Uh, okay, on a brighter note, Noran Gohar is number one in the world. What do we think to that? Not just Noran Gohar, every single player in the women's rankings improved their ranking last month. How incredible is that? Brilliant job. <laughs> great, great month of training for everyone in the tour. Okay, yeah, there's actually I, a couple have... of noticeable ones. Sorry, uh, Colleen Armad made her debut in the top 20, which I think that's, that's worth worth a mention as well. Like She's worked really hard, had a great event at the Black Ball Open in March. Seems like a lifetime ago and the world was a very different place then. But uh, yeah, there you go. And this might be a little bit of a hot take, but tell me if you guys would do the same. If I'm Renine, I just renew my PSA membership. Rankings are frozen. I just keep my world number one status extended. Yeah, I would do the same, actually. I would actually keep it there. Get your numbers up a little. Get and your then stats the minute, up. Yeah, and then when you resume play, it's like, <laughs> I'm done. And I got an extra four months. Pad those stats, Renine. <laughs> we might have to ask her that. She probably has a healthy enough points gap that she could even have like gone a couple of months without playing tournaments once it does resume and still held on. Maybe not. Maybe not in the spirit of uh, of the sport, but something to yeah. think about. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe when one of us reaches number one in the world, we can we can decide how we want to play it out. Yeah. But yeah. Maybe we shouldn't be quite so judgmental until that happens. <laughs> oh no no I, th- I don't think it's judgmental Stuart I think it's more a case that we, we see an opportunity here and <laughs> milk it milk it absolutely for everything that it is because once it's gone it's gone <laughs> yeah uh, interesting to hear what your thoughts were with some of the interviews that we had this week Chris you were with Sam right yeah so we had Sam Cornette I Ooh. had an awesome conversation with her and um you know, we grew up on the Canadian circuit together. She's a, a little bit younger, a few years younger, but she was um, such a strong junior player that we ended up being on the same Pan Americans team um, and uh, got to know each other really well. Her her sister speak, actually. Sorry, speak, it, speaking yeah. of younger, you had a big birthday this week, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. Forty, so right? I, I'm not uh, not younger. Um, forty, yeah. Shit. Forty, forty, not quite. <laughs> Thirty-two years young. In your thirties. Um, yeah. And so Sam, yeah, so knew Sam well. Her sister played at Cornell, was a little bit older than me. So um, great, great people, great family. Uh, Sam, you know, leaves behind an unreal legacy in Canada because not only is she one of the best players to ever play in Canada, but she's also just left like an awesome role model um, uh, legacy behind. She's always mentoring the younger players and, and doing everything she can. And 
So it's good to hear she's going to try and keep her hand in coaching, but um, you know, she's not going to do that as her main profession. And just a couple of the things that stuck out to me. And I wanted to ask you guys, um, you know, your thoughts. Uh, we talked a little bit about how she played her first professional tournament in 2007. She was only around 16 years old. So, but from around 2007 to 2012, you know, she was kind of grinding and grinding. And she talked a little bit about how she was top 16 or so at some of the British Junior Opens and the, the World Junior Championships. And so I just was kind of curious what those first three, three or four years on tour were like, kind of floating and, and struggling to get big wins. And we talked a little bit about how there are a lot of people that kind of fall off in that time range. And and she uh, she battled it out and went from 86 in the world to 44 in um, her breakthrough year in 2011 and then made the finals of the Pan Ams individuals that year as well. So she said the Pan Ams were kind of like one of the sparks that gave her a bit of confidence. But I just thought it was impressive that, um, you know, she kept her he head down and, and kept grinding and eventually got to number 23 in the world. So curious to you guys, you know, how many got, how many of your peers and uh, friends and, you know, people you played against, like how many people did you see drop off in the first few years? Cause they couldn't make that jump or couldn't handle losing. Well, <laughs> um, I mean, I know from my own experience, I got stuck in a rut for a long time, eight, 10 years between 80 to hundred in the world. And, you know, I kept believing I could go further and I had the potential to go further. And I loved that challenge. And every now and again, a couple of times a year, I'd have wins against players or performances against players that would give me that belief and drive and motivation to keep going. And people where I was either overtook me or they fell by the wayside a little bit and kind of dropped off. I think, I think people are a bit more stubborn these days. Oh, stubborn is maybe the wrong word, but they enjoy what they do. They enjoy the travel, they enjoy the lifestyle. And as long as they're not, you know, living off pennies and they can live I think they stick at it a little bit longer than maybe they used to. I think that's probably a little bit more down to in the early years, there was definitely less money. And not that it's a huge amount more now for people at players at that level. You can certainly get by a little bit more and there's opportunities to do some camps over the summers to, you know, boost your boost your revenue, I guess. Yeah, I know I know for me, I, I finished uni at twenty-two years old and Knew that I wanted to play full-time. I was on the national team by that point. Um, but I didn't actually join the PSA straight away. I actually had one year of training full-time. And I was playing domestic tournaments, uh, certainly in Scotland, but also on the BSPA circuit, which was really useful back in the day. Uh, so I was getting a lot of good quality match play through that. But I waited 12 months to join the PSA tour because I didn't feel like I was quite ready for it at the point I graduated. Uh, and I think it maybe wouldn't have been a bad idea if I'd just got on the tour straight away and got a little bit of experience. Certainly without the BSPA tour, it probably would have been necessary. Um, and it's actually quite unfortunate the BSPA no longer really exists. Some, some of the events are still going, but as a coordinated tour, it's sort of folded two or three years ago. But um, Arthur will know as well as I do, those, some of those events were... Like as, good as, any, as good as any PSA events, well, not any, but certainly down at the sort of 5, 10, even up to 20K level, some of the BSPA events were 
just as strong. I mean, a lot of them, I remember playing events with guys in the top 10, playing in them. I remember guys like um, Adrian Grant, uh, Simon Park, Alex Goff, who we had on last week, was a regular on those. And don't forget Marcus Parrish. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna, he was going to be my last one. Do you know what? And we talked about, you know, we had the GOAT conversation not that long ago. And one thing I, I was going to ask you, boys, like who is the best player, that, the hardest player that you've ever played? That guy was a joke. Oh, man, how good was he? I would, I would go so far as to say Marcus Barrett is the best squash player that most people don't know about. Um, I would say... Wow. Uh, and just to give it an idea how good he was, when Lee Beecher was number one in the world, now granted this is a league match and it's not this, it doesn't bear the same weight, certainly not for Beecher at the time. I think he just won the US Open. Fez, sorry, Marcus Barrett, Fez, as he's, as he's known around Yorkshire, <laughs> uh, beat Beechel in three games in Pontefract at a Yorkshire League match. Like I say, it didn't bear much, and I'm sure, I don't think Lee would have been licking his wounds. In fact, I know he wasn't. But even so, just to be that good, to be able to play at that level. I'd love to know if anyone else has ever beaten a world number one while not having any ranking. <laughs> I don't think so. And it was lob drop, lob drop, short swing. Not pushing, pushing is the wrong word, but certainly wasn't hitting the ball at any pace. With how he played, how cool and collected, how smooth his movement was. He was great to watch because he was one of those players that you could watch and feel like, I can do that. I mean, there's yeah. a lot of top, top players that you watch. And obviously, Rami springs to mind. But even when I watch Shabagi, just the physicality of it is like, I could never move that quickly. I could never be that powerful and explosive in my movement watch Ali Farag and I have a similar view in terms of the way he reads the game it's like it's just it's never going to happen whereas Marcus was one of those guys that you could watch and think I can do that I can do that I can do that but then <laughs> you couldn't put it all together like he did yeah I always felt like I played better squash after watching Marcus play <laughs> I remember watching him play for Italy at the Europeans in his last few years and and actually I've beaten some really good players and actually at the World teams and Paderborn Stewart. I don't know if you remember, but he had some pretty big wins there also. I can't remember who he beat there. I do remember him playing Thierry Linku when I'm not sure Thierry was number one in the world, but he was certainly still highly ranked, certainly top 10. And this was an Italian league. And again, you can't read too much into it because I'm sure Thierry at that point in his career had higher priorities than playing Italian league, but it was an absolute battle, I think. I think Thierry did eventually win, but it was a really tight match. Yeah, it was a great anecdote when Davide Bianchetti was on Bobby and the Wolf a few weeks ago. And Davide, an Italian guy who actually has a positive head-to-head record against Peter Nichol, uh, one of the few, maybe one of the only, I'm not sure. Anyways, and, you know, Davide would go ahead, would, you know, nip across to Milan, have a hit with Marcus, get chopped in three games in about 30 minutes, smash a couple of rackets, like, hey, Marcus, let's go again. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, what a guy. A better head-to-head record against Peter Nichol than he did against Marcus Barrett. That's a (laughs) lot. (laughs) Anyways, where were we? (laughs) Who'd you guys have on? So, yeah, I spoke to Jenny Duncalf. Um, Again, really interesting getting Jenny's thoughts on... Uh, Raneem's career. Um, Jenny actually played her last ever match as a professional against Raneem at the British Open last year. Um, so just reflecting on uh, that, 
and her thoughts on Raneem. I know Jenny was someone that thought very highly of Raneem and knew her from quite an early age and saw her progress through her career. Uh, so, yeah, it was really interesting to talk. I, actually, it wasn't that interesting because if you listened to the In Squash podcast, you would have heard most of what she said anyway. But, <laughs> but if you're loyal to our podcast and you don't listen to any other squash podcast, then you're in for a treat. It's an exclusive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I look forward to hearing that again. Uh, yeah, I had, I had Ashley and Blake on, and she gave a couple of great anecdotes and kind of saw saw it, I suppose, from a couple of different lenses. Firstly, as a player and watching her, she's a, you know would have seen her rise from incredibly successful junior career into her early PSA career and getting to like you know two in the world up to one in the world, but also now more recently as a commentator. And she gave anecdotes as both. What did Sam have to say about Raneem? Yeah, similar to what we heard on kind of Twitter and and different people um, commenting on the retirement. She just really had to say how good of a person she is off court how she always had time for everyone, um, super personable and, you know, obviously applauded, uh, the squash and the way she competed. But, um, yeah, it just sounds like, you know, such a, such a great person on tour and a great person leading the way as, as world number one. So, um, yeah, she definitely was, uh, you know, gonna, gonna miss her on tour. Not world like number it. one anymore. She's got the same ranking as us now. Hey, yeah. retired. <laughs> It'll be interesting to see who picks up that mantle. I think Camille Sarum will have a big season. I think she's she's probably going to see an opportunity. She's been number two in the world. And, yeah. Wow. And I think she recognises that she's probably in the latter stage of her career. And if she really wants to get to number one before she retires, then probably the next 12 months is the time to do it. So I'm I'm personally expecting her to be very competitive in the next 12 months. Yeah, it's like great... competitions. So. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> those events. Yeah, I'm going to be very competitive in the next 12 months too, Stuart. Oh my man! There's no because no one, no one has a court to challenge me on. <laughs> I'm sure if you want to put that challenge out there, someone will find you a court. Speaking of, speaking of, have you guys seen the um, the cool pictures and videos of the? Um, structure in queens the outdoor court in queens new york oh i did see that yeah on a a tweet yeah it's i believe it's the office of a um welding company and so um outside of their outside of their office building which it it looks like it's kind of near the water and uh, they built this beautiful like steel court um and it's got an outdoor outdoor wooden floor um, I don't know how they, how they do the drainage, but, uh, yeah, it looks amazing. A few people have given it a test run and they've posted a bunch of pictures and videos on, on YouTube and, or on, um, Instagram, sorry. And so if you look at public squash or I believe it's Mason welding, check it out. Cool. Yeah. Unfortunately it's not public. It's their, it's their, a part of their office wellness program. Maybe we need to ship that court off to some sort of like, like I know the UFC has fight Island and, in Abu Dhabi, maybe the squash tour needs to ship that island off to some remote island and then just quarantine everyone on there. Well, or you could go to Disneyland, which is where I believe the Major League Baseball is going to happen soon. Is that no, right? Major League Soccer and the NBA, I believe. The basketball, oh, sorry, NBA, NBA is already there. Yeah. 
Ah, there you go. Major thanks. League Soccer, I think, is also doing it. Oh, do you reckon their uh, the theme parks are open? <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking. It's like, <laughs> do they still get to go on the rides? <laughs> so, so I read, I read, uh, they they put out an announcement today saying some some rides will be available for the NBA players because oh. a bunch of a bunch of guys are putting out. Uh, like tweets and Instagram saying if they think they can keep us out of the theme park, they got another <laughs> thing coming. <laughs> oh, legends. Okay, let's get stuck into the first of our three Raneem Elwalili tribute interviews. First up is former Irish international, Irish national champion, world highest world ranking of 21 in the world and the current PSA commentator and squash coach extraordinaire, Ashley Blake. Okay, we're joined here by the former world number 21, former Irish national champion and current PSA Squash TV commentator, Ashing Blake. Ashing, thanks really for joining us. How are you doing, man? I'm good. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. It's, it's, I'm delighted and honoured to be on your podcast. Oh, so. the honour is all ours. Thanks very much. <laughs> all right. So one of the reasons that we wanted to call you in today and get your yeah. opinion is obviously the shock announcement or... Uh, surprise announcement of Raneem El-Walili retiring at the summit of the rankings, something that I only think, we only think Susan Devoy had done, possibly Heather McKay and Jonathan Power. Yeah. And I suppose the first question, like, I mean, you've, you've obviously, you've played against her and you've watched her play a lot mm-hmm. from the commentary box. What are your thoughts? What was your first initial thing when you heard the news? My first initial thing was, was, was like, what class? Like, the girl has... Class written all over her from, or the woman, I should say, from when she started playing on tour and to go out and, and kind of celebrate the, the news about starting a family. Um, I just thought this is brilliant. Like, for her to do that, it's amazing. It, it was a, a slightly different end to Nicole David's career. Um, initially, I I wasn't that surprised um, because... I had heard a tiny little rumbling of a, a rumor back in um, probably maybe mid December, and um, it was just kind of subject conjecture at that point. And then when this started, and if you think of the time that it takes to come back on tour, and the motivation that you need to come back on tour to get to get that that fight and hunger back, um, given her age, given um, that she's now married and and I I'm assuming that she kind of wanted kids from from a while ago. I wasn't that shocked. Uh, I thought in the last six months there was a small bit of dip in um, focus and it didn't really come off as in she wasn't playing badly, but it just didn't seem she was so kind of gracious and she always is in defeat. It didn't seem as it hurt her so much that she kind of wanted to get back I just I I just had the sense of that and it might be easy for me to say now in hindsight but uh, that was my my feelings about six months ago um and where did you first see that where did you first kind of like well it was west coast time so I think I woke up and I was like oh darn we've lost one of the good ones um (laughs) I just think she's you know the accolades have flown in far and wide and she is such a good ambassador for our sport because and we might get into it later she's 
human. She is so human on the court. She is one of the most talented players. Her swing is beautiful. Her temperament is beautiful. But you can see the the vulnerability and the infallibility of players when you watch Renee Melwalili play because she does something that us normal folk do too. We make stupid mistakes and stupid decisions. Um, and the odd time you can see her do that. So I just, um, I, I guess, yeah, I was like sad for the tour because I think she's a, an amazing part of the tour, huge part of the tour. Yeah, yeah, she's a legend. Uh, ultimate role model for any yeah. young aspiring player. I, to be honest, don't even have to be young to, <laughs> to no, appreciate her no, as, a, no. as a role model. Yeah. When did uh, when did you first become aware of her name? When did you first see her play? Um, she is a few years younger than myself. Um, let's say, as is uh, most everyone uh, these days. But um, she, the first time I saw her was when she was about in the twenties, and then I played her in the Cayman Islands in the World Champs, and. I think um, she is a player, say from the, tw- I would have been about in the 30s, I think then at that time in the, the ranked in the 30s. For players in the 30s playing against her, it was so difficult because she had this ability to hit, to hit 10 shots from, from a particular position. Um, she could do whatever she wanted, but she probably had 10 po- shots in her arsenal. And you're on the one hand trying to get the shots back and return them and implement your game. And on the other hand, you're going, God, that swing is beautiful. Jeez, her movement's absolutely amazing. And by the time that thought has gone through your head, you've the ball's gone by you. Like that's no way to play someone is to just be kind of observing how brilliant they are. And I used to also hate my friends playing her because you'd go over in the middle in the 90 seconds, you'd be like, Jeez, see that backhand drop. <laughs> <laughs> and your your friend's going, yeah, that's great. But what what do you want me? Like, what am I doing here? And you're like, well, I mean, I'd avoid the backhand if I were you because it's absolutely lethal. So um, my first, one of my first experiences was actually playing her and being in awe and in thrall of her. And uh, personally and all that off the court, uh, she is an absolute gem and... Um, uh, like so personable, so so personable off the court. And did you sort of think at that stage, having played her and experienced playing her, even though it was early in her career, that you thought she could be something special? Oh, without a doubt. I mean, I mean that goes without saying. She was what one six British Junior Opens, so she was never, she was never a person who, like, started late or anything. It yeah. was just it was just the fact that she took her time. I like her trajectory because she, in 2012, she got up to number two. And then, of course, she took the number one spot from Nicole. So she was kind of around 20 for a while, then rose to 10, got up to two, took the spot from Nicole, lost it about a month and a half later because Laura Massaro came in and swooped it off her. So 2012, she's number two in the world. 2020, she's number one in the world. There's not many players. So she didn't have, uh, came from nowhere rise. She was yeah. always going to be amazing. Gr- Granger, Natalie Granger, who is a, a friend of mine, and she's also um, extremely confident in her own abilities, is uh, she used to say Renine El-Walili reminded her of a young her, of a young Natalie Granger. And I was thinking, Renine El-Walili reminds me of Renine El-Walili. <laughs> <laughs> no, let's, not, let's not be trying to jump on her bandwagon. 
yeah. quite like it. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> no comment. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 Uh, that is actually I hadn't realised that. I another stat about the British Junior Open Stuart brought up last week was she had she played it nine times and made nine finals. I know. This yeah. is just scandalous. So it was never a matter of if, it was just a matter of when for her. And the biggest thing of of her early career, so the, 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 there might be two her names, the biggest thing of her early career was that she did not have the consistency. And I remember distinct. I think I got a game off. Oh, maybe I didn't. Maybe I'm making that up. No, you I did think, uh, in the did I get a game. You won the, the first game. game. Okay. Brilliant. Great start. One level. And, and <laughs> one level up. And then having a clue what happened. But what what she gave players like me at that point was um she gave us a glimmer. We're like, if I get Renee on a bad day, I have a chance. You wouldn't have had that against Nicole at that time. So that's part one of her career. Brilliant, brilliant, um, but inconsistent and somewhat lacking perhaps in motivation. I'm not sure about that. Part two, the consistency, the drive. There's something about the team that she had together, um, like Haitam and her husband and the fitness coach. And uh, um, I think that like everything gelled for part two and she's way more consistent and probably confidence. Weirdly enough, confidence, I think, was a factor with her, even though she's as brilliant as she is. Some of the results were due to lack of confidence. Yeah. Yeah, you can kind of see that every now and again. Yeah. She looked kind of like hard on herself sometimes. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think one. Go on. No, no, sorry, please. The one of the biggest things was how she dealt with like that kind of stuff, those losses. Like she, I remember a US Open with Holly Norton and it was in the first round, it was on the glass court in Philadelphia. And that, I think she won 12-10 in the fifth. It was to the wire, number one seed. Holly's going like, Holly's good. She's a fighter. Knock, and she gets a, a little inch in like that. And then you're like, on a commentary point of view, you're going, do not lose this match, Renee, because if you lose it, you're out for the next while and we all want to see you get better. But from a, a kind of an underdog, wouldn't it be great for someone to take a scalp? It was it was amazing to watch. But the way she got out of those matches, I have I just have no idea. And then she'd usually, obviously, get better and better as the tournament went on. Is there any moments or any sort of matches that stand out from from a commentating perspective that you've sort of commentated on and just were just so happy to be watching and yeah that's why it's so hard to commentate on her because you're in awe like you're 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 supposed to have a kind of a you know like detached appreciation of a kind of oh let's analyze this particular pattern that just happened in this game and you're going wow that was brilliant that's not useful commentary to anyone because all we're doing, all I'm doing is watching it as an audience member. But that's what she instills in people. She just kind of, you're just gobsmacked by what she can do. But one of the big ones, um, she's had the interesting head-to-heads, right? She she mostly has really good head-to-heads with everyone. Um, like Nicole uh, was, so she was, what, she's up 10, maybe t- 18 something or other with Nicole 
Laura Massaro's got a bit of an edge over her. She's the only one that the head-to-head has flipped. Um, Camille Serm has only beaten her four times, and they've had some epic, epic matches, but she's only beaten her four times. The, she beat her in the TOC, and that was the first time Camille Serm had beaten her in seven years. So the, the matches out of that... Um, little kind of group that that I've really enjoyed watching is one of them actually was with Joel King and I think it was the semi-final of a US Open and that was just stunning I was kind of um at the time heartbroken again the Joel King had those chances and uh, I think there was a few backhand drops that were just a little bit um edgy with the the, the racket but that game was amazing the one with Camille Serm in the TOC amazing um just in terms of the respect for each other but that aside the, the fantastic squash and the amazing retrieval of Camille versus the some way Renee was able to do kind of what she wanted with the ball but the doggedness of Camille Camille getting in there lifting that ball up throwing it up again the physicality just kind of wore the the game of running down which is um what sometimes used to happen or she would she would get a little bit trigger happy with the tin hmm. i can relate to that i suppose that's the yeah. human side that you were talking about earlier on <laughs> yeah just uh the, another memorable one is uh norel tayeb in the semi-finals i think it was the semi-final of the world champs in chicago oh amazing match yeah yeah and just, I, I really liked their dynamic. And from a psychological point of view, I had a theory that the, the little terrier aspect of Noor El Tayeb bothered Renee Malwalili. Um, and to be honest, I've never actually, I've had conversations with people close to her about it, but never her herself. And I just think it irked her because this girl wouldn't let her play beautiful squash. And maybe it was to do with the age, maybe, the, you know, the, the role model stuff as well. But yeah. um, I could see El Tayab getting under El Walili's skin. And fascinating for me was the psychological warfare going on in her head. And you can almost see that as an audience member. Sometimes when she's receiving serve, she's talking to herself. It's a bit like Rami. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing. I think you've kind of covered all bases there. I mean, we could obviously yeah, talk we'll about her all day. Yeah. We, we, we could talk about her all day. We'll miss her. She will, She's going to be extremely hard to replace. Um, she's got a few... Uh, I think that the, the role model aspect of her with all of the girls, like, you know, that Shabini, she had really good battles with Shabini. But just to give me an example, that last Windy City Open with Shabini, she was going to the pharmacy to get medicine for Shabini because Shabini's lungs were about to blow up because she was sick like struggling onto the court each day Renee her opponent in the final goes to the pharmacy to get her medicine to keep her well to make sure she's okay for the final and then Shabini has the audacity to go and beat her in the final but like stuff like that um it, I don't think that's going to I can't see a lot of that on tour, that mother hen, especially among the Egyptian girls, because now they don't have a, a higher, like in age, they don't, they're all peers now. They're all kind of, they're hustling, they're, they're growing up together. Whereas before she really looked after that bunch. I think she, I think they will miss that a lot. Yeah, you could see that actually they were quite emotional and heartfelt yeah. tweets and yeah. messages. Yeah. Yeah, quite incredible really. Jeez, I didn't know that. Yeah. That's a... Uh... 
<laughs> but you're, uh, Garth, are you be poisoning your opponent? No, no, no. I just ignore we'd it. We be putting we <laughs> be putting arsenic in their meal to try and make them sicker. She gets tries to get her opponent better. I would actually probably be so. I'd be like, all right, you're not well. Happy days. Yeah. Like, this is in the bag. I'm going for a pint. All right. Well, yeah, good stuff. Okay. Well, thanks. Thanks a million for sharing all that insight. Actually, that was amazing. Some good anecdotes there. Cool. Happy days. No problem. Uh, no problem indeed. Nice one, Ashley. Thanks a million for coming on. Hope everyone, hope you really enjoyed that. That was that was awesome. That was great. Um, <laughs> some really good stuff. Moving on, uh, we now have Christopher Sackley's interview with the former Canadian national champion and highest world ranking of 28, the recently retired Samantha Cornett. There's another big retirement that we we discussed, and we'll hopefully have Renine Elwalili on um, the podcast soon to talk. But just, I saw you played her once in 2014, but but obviously we're at a lot of events with her probably over the last you know five ten years. So, what was um, you know your reaction to the retirement? But then also you know your just your thoughts on her as a, a player, a person, someone you you know were competing against and and watching as as one of the top players of the last five years yeah uh, i have a lot of like thoughts and feelings about that retirement i'm sure the world does um at first i was so surprised um but then i was really happy for her because that's a like first of all she's number one in the world what a cool time to retire um and second of all to make that decision like you're not injured. Um, obviously this quarantine and pandemic like might have some sway for sure, but uh, like she's making that decision, which I think is um, good, I hope for her. Uh, but it's definitely a huge loss for all of us because I, I love watching squash. Uh, she is amazing to watch and um, like getting to watch on like through tournaments on tour and getting to play her there's I don't think there's there's a couple people like Nicole David um but like there's not that many people who are so personable and easy to talk to but so fierce at the same time and I really really respect that and um I like I think she's just like 100% all around amazing. So I'll be sad not to not to watch her. And like, obviously her squash is incredible. I was watching some of her top 10 hits the other day and I was just in awe. It's, she's amazing. <laughs> yeah, that was one of the things we noticed was, was not only, you know, everyone in the squash world was coming out with, you know, just a little, a little uh, personal statement on, on her retirement, but so many of them included just like her, her personality and her demeanor, um, on, on court, off court. And yeah, obviously never, I, I never came across her, but, um, she sounds like a legend and retiring at number one, you know, that that'll go, she'll live on forever now, which is is super cool. Awesome stuff. I think we're starting to get a picture here that Renee is basically just a legend and everyone thinks that and rightly so. Great stuff. Thanks again, Samantha, for coming on to the show and for catching up 
with us. And here we go into our final interview, which is with Jenny Duncalf, former England international and world number two, who actually played her last match before retiring with Raneem at the British Open a little over a year ago. And here we go. So I'm pleased to say I'm joining us on the show today. We've got former world number two, all the way from Australia. Welcome to the show, Jenny Duncalf. Hi Stuart, how you doing? Good to I'm be good. here. Thanks Jenny. So we wanted to speak to you today about your views on Raneem's retirement and obviously certainly came as a bit of a shock to us. I know you you actually played your last match ever in your career against Raneem about a year ago at the British Open and can't imagine you expected that a year later she'd be joining you in retirement. So do you want to tell us a little bit about whether you had any sort of forewarning about that or whether it came as a shock to you as well? Yeah, um, yeah, it was definitely a shock. I was at football training at the time and then got in my car and Al, Alison Waters had texted me being like, Renee's retired, what, you know, OMG kind of thing. And I was like, what? Uh, yeah, came came home, told Rachel, she obviously doesn't, well, not obviously, but she's no idea what's going on in, in the world of social media or anything like that. So she was, so both, both shocked. Um, Obviously, Raneem's been thinking about it probably for a couple of years now, as everyone sort of does once you get to 30, 30-ish. Uh, but being world number one, it's, I mean, it's so good. To, it's, it's a pretty brave thing to do, dropping off at the very top of your game when the temptation to continue being so successful must be there. But then the more after I, I was pretty gutted, like everyone, it was more just the thought of not being able to see her play in a competitive scenario again given that she is I'm sure for every almost everybody just the the epitome of kind of beautiful squash that we've seen over the past for me anyway I mean we've had there's so many good players but um personally Raneem at her best it's just in terms of movement and skill level when she's on top of their game and those two things combined it's just uh, poetry in motion really to watch so so the shock and the disappointment of not thinking she's not going to be at a tournament again in that capacity as a player but then the more you think about it it's not that big big a shock really I mean she's 31 now I think um you know been playing for years and years won everything in the game obviously starting a family um, which, especially in Egypt, culturally, the, the girls tend to get married a bit earlier and fall pregnant a bit earlier, start families at a younger age than than some of the other countries. Uh, so it's not massively surprising. Plus, the situation at the moment doesn't know when the next tournament's even going to be coming from in terms of PSA calendar. So, yeah, and I'm just really, really pleased for her and happy for her and Tarek and you know, I mean, she's done so much. It's hard to even articulate what she's done for the game and how much joy she's given to spectators and in- inspiring, you know, young young kids, boys and girls, not just Egyptians, not even kids, just anyone who watched her watched her play. She's she's uh, she's inspiring, and you just wish that you could play like that. I think I, I think I speak for quite a lot of people when when I say that. Yeah, I think one of the things that stood out in the tributes that a lot of people have been posting on social media is not just her on-court ability, but how highly regarded she was as a person off the court. And 
I, haven't, I don't know anyone that's got anything bad to say about her. And uh, I remember when you retired and you got interviewed after that match, she spoke so highly of her as a person as well. So is she someone that you got to know well on tour? And what was your relationship like with her? Yeah, um, Renee's a good few years younger than me. And I, I always, it, before I got to know her pretty well, I kind of always had a bit of a soft spot for her because she just kind of, I don't know, there's just her aura and you can see how she's just a kind person and she's a she's a special person and it sounds a bit cheesy, but you can kind of tell that without getting to know her that well, just in the way she behaves and interacts with other people. She's so kind and generous and sincere. There's a lot of people in sport and I'm sure all walks of life that like to perhaps even give off that impression or but she genuinely is like authentically a lovely person and her parents are brother her brother's great and just that the way her mom is around tournaments you could see that she's just been brought up so well and and to think of others and not just herself which which can be a rare thing for such a successful sports person at the same time as being so driven and competitive she always had time for people so yeah we got on really well I think I feel like we're sort of similar personalities in a way when in terms of squash perhaps not the most tactically astute at times but maybe a bit more I wish I I wish I was like Raneem I could never played anywhere near as as good as Raneem but um you know like to be creative concentrations could sort of go up and down like tomboyish off off the court when she was young so was I um and she was just always yeah so so kind and helpful a lot of the Egyptian girls are like that especially in their own countries they're always there to to you know take you out to a restaurant or tell you where to go um so yeah always been fond of Raneem and you always got on well you know when you play her you might lose you might win when if I was playing her when she was younger but it's always going to be a fair game an open game um so yeah she's just a a great person really (laughs) really yeah she's one of those players that no matter how many times you've seen her play you can't really remember a scrappy match where there was a lot of decisions and any contentious like pickups or anything like that as you say she was always so fair and Almost. We had one, sorry to interrupt that, <laughs> we did have one slightly dodgy match, actually. Um, Must have been your fault. You remember. It was. It was <laughs> I like to think it wasn't. Um, this was years ago, and it was because, I don't really know how it happened, but it was the World Team Championships in Cairo, and it was England against Egypt in the final. It was at the, national, at the stadium, and we lost 2-1 in, in matches. But the ending was really contentious. Alison Walsh was playing NG and, and on match ball, it, w- it wasn't quite clear if the ball was up or down. But before the ref could even decide on it, the entire Egyptian team ran on court. The fans were going nuts. So, and it was just like impossible to even um, get an outcome to the match. It was The ref couldn't even speak. You couldn't see the ref. Uh, anyway, and then we played in Hagada. Oh, Sharm El Sheikh, sorry, like literally two or three days later. And there's just a bit of, it felt a bit contentious. And at the end, <laughs> it was me, it was my fault. At the end, I won and we shook hands and it was a, and it was a bit of a, I don't know if she did it deliberately, probably not. It wasn't that contentious and it was just a bit of a wet handshake. <laughs> so I, and she just sort of wet handshake and 
turned off. So I kind of grabbed the hand just and was, this is as contentious as it got. I grabbed her hand and shook it hard and was like, shake hands properly. And that was it. And Omnia was out the back, I think, having a few words in Arabic at me, perhaps. Um, so that was the only time it was borderline contentious. But that was all from the World Team Championships finals. But apart from that, as you say, absolute pleasure to play against. Do you remember the first time you saw her play or the first time you played her yourself? I do. I remember her seeing her. I tended to play Omnia Abdul Kawi a lot. And I remember Raneem being around and watching watching a lot she was really young back then the first time I remember playing her I don't know if it was the first time we played but the one that sticks out for me uh, I think it was like in a first or second round of world championships in Manchester and I remember being on the back end of a good few taxis a backhand cross-court drop from behind she got me on that a few times but some of those did hit the tin, actually. But I remember I, I won. I don't know what the score was, but I should have won at the time. She was probably about 12 or something ridiculous. <laughs> um, but, yeah, just the skill level was um, was so good with her movement. And everyone, you know, the thing for Raneem was just getting a heading gear, her concentration, and, and getting the error count down because she was blessed with ridiculous movement and just racket skills to die for, really. I remember the first time, I, I don't know if it was the first time I lost her, but I remember losing to her at the British Open uh, when it was in um, the O2, is it O2 Arena yeah. down south. And I'd have been, I don't know, seated, definitely seated above her, maybe two or three or something. And I think we played in the quarterfinals and she beat me 3-1 maybe. But I remember thinking, so it was sort of deemed Feel a bad love, result. I'm afraid. Sorry. Ah, oh, damn it. Giving myself a game. <laughs> oh, she chopped me three love then. I remember thinking, <laughs> I'm getting chopped here. So, yeah, I don't know why I gave myself a generous game there. But just You did thinking, lose the first 12-10, hmm. so maybe that, maybe you gave yourself there that There you one. go. Yeah, I think that yeah, I peaked in the first. And just thinking, not sure I'm ever going to beat her. You know, and you just think, God, that could be my wins against her over and she was just so good it was the first time on the backhand side because I used to prefer my backhand to my forehand and I was like you know trying to hold it a bit on my backhand and Raneem was just so much better than me at doing it and I didn't have a forget all her lovely cross court nicks and all of that stuff but just her weight of shot from just a straight drop to a straight length was so hard to read and just her weight of shot and ball control was exceptional and I really felt like she was I just didn't know where it was going and yeah that was big moment in terms of thinking yeah not sure I'm going to get, get much joy against <laughs> against this girl anymore yeah it's always demoralizing when you feel that you've played well and you've done everything you wanted to do and you still look like it's easy to dismiss matches where oh, I didn't play well or yeah I got it wrong tactically but next time I'll do something different but that feeling when you come off court and you're like I don't know what I could have done differently or better and I still lost that's yeah. That's always tough to take. Yeah. So, so was that the moment when you really felt like she could push on and win world title or reach number one in the world? Or did you have that feeling from a little bit earlier? From earlier, like the one thing for Aneem, I, I always felt a bit, not felt sorry for her, but you knew just looking at her as a 15-year-old that she would be world champion or she, she's got the potential 
And I always felt for a bit that just because she's so talented, everyone just expected her to walk walk through events and like pick up world titles at a very young age. So it's a lot of pressure. Um, and of course, she won, you know, world juniors a couple of times, I think, and big, big tournaments. But it wasn't until, I think, 2017 that she actually became world champion, became world number one earlier, but which was incredible. The first first Arab woman to become world number one in any sport, and she was the first one to take over Nicole David. Uh, so amazing that she did that. And I was really pleased for her to sort of fulfill her potential. And I always was saying this to someone else the other day, I always wonder, I think it'd be interesting if she did get a world title a bit younger, but like Shabini has done, if she'd have picked up more. Um, yeah, well, she came yeah, so close that like, year in Egypt against Nicole when she had those match balls. Yeah, yeah, and the four ten six up. I mean, that is just oh, gut-wrenching. I can't imagine she slept for a good year or so after that. Uh, so I was so chuffed when she won it in 2017. But yeah, she's had a lot of pressure given her talent, but it's not that easy, you know, men- mentally. And you start wanting it quite a lot. And sometimes it's harder to get if you if you want it too much. But yeah, she's absolutely fulfilled, fulfilled her potential. But to answer your question, yeah, from early, early age, you could see that she could become world champion and world number one one day. And she did that, so... I'm yeah, she did. Destined for the top and finished on the top. My man, that's just a perfect way to wrap up this episode. Renee Melwalili, destined for the top, finished at the top. Very apt, very poetic. Love it. Well, that concludes episode 10. Thank you, Jenny. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Ashley, for coming on the show and for talking to us and sharing your experiences and tributes for Renee. Some really good stuff there. As always, thank you, Stuart. Thank you, Chris. Been a blast. For everyone who is listening, Thank you again. I mean, this is episode 10. We're still having a buzz, so we'll keep doing it. Uh, We're enjoying it. We're having a great crack talking about the game that we love, and we hope you enjoy listening to at least a little bit of it. And if you do like it, don't keep it yourself. Share with your friends. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Around the Court Squash Podcast. I think it's at ATC Squash Podcast. Awesome. Uh, Thanks again, and have a great rest of your day. Cheers.